Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts. Today, my co-host and I will be discussing a topic that might well irritate some of those who are listening. Before we get to this particular topic, I think it's important to note that there are a number of well-accepted truths, and I'll put that word truths in quotes, that are bantered about within church circles. Here are just a couple of them. Hate the sin, not the sinner. God will not give you more than you can handle. We must ask and accept Jesus Christ into our hearts. These could all be featured chapters in a book that would be entitled Things the Bible Never Says. Another common truth, again in quotes, that can be added to the list is God loves unconditionally and so should we. So Charles, why would we in this discussion have the audacity to state that the premise of unconditional love is a heresy which functions to subvert and destroy biblical faith? Because it is. Okay, that was a quick answer. Well, I'm thinking when uh, Dr. Rustuni was being interviewed by Bill Moyers, uh, he, he gave an answer like that when Moyers asked him some sort of question. He, I think he said, because it's God's truth, and left it at that. Uh, let me tell you, before I answer that question, somebody's already written the book you are uh, sort of Ill- illustratively referring to. I found this book uh, a few years ago, and it's called something like 52 Lies Heard in Church Every Sunday. It's not written by anyone who is reformed. And what, what the guy did is he took 52 equaling 52 weeks, and they were statements like what we're talking about today. If you're going to love, love unconditionally, or love the, the sinner, lo- hate the sin, but love the sinner. And right. he included a number of these kind of things in that book. Oh, so um, I don't have to write it. Phew, that's no, more don't. time on my hands now. <laughs> right. But this becomes a very, very significant issue especially in light of our recent times where we have seen things taking place where people would exhort we who follow God's law to behave in this way at what they call unconditional love when they themselves uh, have no intention of showing any kind of regard for people who disagree with their anti-biblical perspectives. In some ways, it parallels the issue of tolerance. Like Rustuni wrote uh, in one of his other writings is that the promotion of toleration is just a, a segue to a new intolerance. And it's similar with this, I think. But the most important issue is, does Scripture actually teach unconditional love on God's part or our part? And it certainly does not. Why is it that these isms, these truisms that aren't true at all, have permeated the life of the church. And I got to thinking about it, and it sort of reminds me of when you're talking with some people about issues, social issues, they'll spout off what they heard on the news last night or what they read on their social media feed without ever having actually done the research. Now, there are plenty of Christian churches that will encourage their congregants to read through the Bible, but you have to wonder how many times they come up to statements in scripture 
that contradict these things that they continue to say. Probably the most um, egregious one is that to be saved, you have to accept Jesus into your heart, which of course means you're doing the initiation. Have people just read the cliff notes or have what they really done is not done any investigation and decide that biblical faith is anything you want it to be? Yeah, I think it's very much the latter. And there's something to the idea of, I'll use the the phrase, American civil religion, you know, which is a blend of broad Christian ideas with aphorisms and old sayings and and, uh, folkisms. And people get this confused in their minds, and they think, the Bible says, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You know, that, that, that kind of generalization about things that just is floating around in the atmosphere, and people latch onto it. And depending on who they are listening to or getting their guidance from, there are plenty of Bible teachers and expositors out there who really don't know that much about Scripture. And they're coming from a, a place of, antinomianism. And Dr. Rushdoony points out in one of the articles that we were using to prepare for this how uh, antinomianism, the rejection of the standard of God's law and evangelical churches in particular, you know, has captured those churches for a long, long time. And so when that happens, uh, you wind up with sentimental attitudes about things rather than what God's word actually says. And it's almost as though an actual rendering of what the Bible says would come across as offensive, which, of course, the Bible is offensive to those at war with God, and they want to make it easy. They want to make it nicer. And so this whole idea, remember the expression of the song, give me that good old time religion. Just give me the simple stuff. I don't want anything complex. I'm not a theologian. Just give me that simple gospel. Well, the gospel isn't simple, and the Christian faith is not something that can be summarized in two sentences. But when we want to reduce things down to sound bites, we end up with, and I use the words heresy and subversion and a revolutionary attack on biblical faith as though everybody's good. There is no right and wrong. There is no evil, there's no good or righteousness. And so you leave people without a battle plan on how to do anything. I think it's significant that in one of the two essays that Dr. Rastuni wrote uh, that suggested this topic to us for this discussion, and he wrote this one way back in 1968. I mean, he begins the article by asking the question or pointing out that if you want to completely upend or subvert a society and sound noble, and beautiful while you're doing it, then you promote this kind of idea. Demand, love, and forgiveness, he says, for everybody and everything. And, of course, when he wrote that, that was a big-ticket issue in his day. You know, love and peace and that kind of thing with the Peter Max artistic rendering of the word love. And so people have this idea that, really, it's sentiment that matters. I remember seeing someone having a slogan on a T-shirt or something, and that's what it said, If you're going to love, love unconditionally. I remember one of my children, I won't say which, had been caught doing something that was not only inappropriate, it was against family rules. And we responded accordingly. And and what I was told was, you're supposed to love me unconditionally. 
And I had to acquaint this child with, no, I don't. Everything in life has conditions. Even the forgiveness that is rendered where Jesus took our place, the condition was Calvary. If we're not in Christ condition, then we won't be saved. And so I went through and started looking at a lot of the if-then statements, statements in scripture that are very conditional. Here's a few. If you love me, keep my commandments. You can derive from that, that if you don't keep my commandments, you must not love me. Or I am the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. So here we have an if-then. And then, of course, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father. So there are plenty of conditions here, and I could have gone on with a much longer list. Why is unconditional love so appealing to people? Well, I think as in the the family example that you just cited, uh, whether it be that or similar things in other families or other situations, people want their wrongdoings and their sins overlooked and allowed. And so the demand for unconditional love is just that. It's a demand that you accept whatever my behavior may be with the idea that it's, it's noble and it's, it's a marvelous thing if you can love me while I'm basically stabbing you in the back. You know, right. the Lord himself declares in Psalm 139, and he puts it in the form of a question, do I not hate them, that, uh, O Lord, that hate thee? And am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. That's David actually saying that, excuse me. But it raises the point that this is an attitude that the Lord is favorable towards, that we should hate those that hate God and his law. Now, in one of the articles, Dr. Rastuni points out that we are required by our Lord, to forgive our enemies, you know, assuming that they have sought repentance. So that's a very different thing than just sort of a broad, pre-forgiven attitude that some people bring to the table. I remember during one of the political campaigns some years ago, I won't say which of the candidates it was, but this uh, man in one of those debate situations, and and by the way, this goes back at least 20 or 30 years, uh, he, he kept referring to Jesus. You know, I, I think Jesus was this and Jesus was that, and I believe in Jesus. And somebody made the comment that, you know, he's sending a signal to his potential voters that he's pre-forgiven for everything that he might do that really is contrary to the Bible because he said that. And that's the way some people would think about uh, someone using Jesus' name in that way. But uh, let, let's say we've got people who claim to be Christian. They go to church once in a while. Or maybe they go to church a lot, but they really don't have any clue about what God's law word actually teaches. But if you ask them, they would say, oh, yes, yes, I believe the Bible. Reminds me of a guy who said that he absolutely knew everything. And somebody asked him a question. And he said, well, I don't know the answer to that. And the guy said, well, I thought you know everything. Well, I do, but I don't know that. And it's right. the same thing with this. People say they believe the Bible, but then when you hold their feet to the fire, so to speak, and say, okay, if you really follow a consistent biblical way of life, it's not to say you're perfect, but then the Bible ought to inform every aspect of your life and thought and your activities and your social interactions. And scripture simply does not teach an unconditional love. So in response to the idea of, I don't know everything, I've heard then added on, but I know the person who does. 
And then that excuses them from knowing whatever or giving an answer to whatever you're bringing up as an issue. And so it's this idea that uh, I can name drop. Oh, I know Jesus. I'm in Jesus. But I don't have to really know the implications on economics or the implications in linguistics or the implications in terms of how to raise a family. You know what? I know Jesus. Jesus knows me and we're good. And it, it's really a surrender to the idea that the word of God speaks to every area of life and thought. In other words, it's just a generalization and it's a feel good thing, but the results are catastrophic. How do you love a regime that oppresses Christians? How do you pray for people who are at war with God. And I think a lot of the confusion comes right into what you referenced in terms of the Lord's Prayer. There's a difference when we say that we forgive those who've trespassed against us. You see, if somebody forgets to invite me to a birthday party, they haven't offended God or his word. It was an oversight. It was a, um, you know, a slap in the face, whatever. That's a personal thing. It's personal. It's not moral. But if somebody is a rapist and continues to do so and is allowed to do so, to think that we can forgive something that's primarily an offense against God and those who are created in his image basically makes it that you're always at the point where if you won't forgive, if, if you won't say this is okay, that we're playing God. Because God's the one who says that you shouldn't violate people in rape or you shouldn't commit adultery or you shouldn't practice homosexuality. I didn't make that up. I read it and I believe it because God says it and I have to act on it. But this whole idea that um, we're supposed to be punching bags and then the more we smile when we get punched, well, the better things are. Yeah, it's like the old saying, uh, you need to be a doormat for Jesus. The fact is there would never have been anything remotely like a Christian civilization that stretched over a thousand years if Christians had thought that way. And Jesus certainly didn't teach his disciples to be doormats. Now, he did teach principles of love and forgiveness, but those were all within the larger context of God's law. And the people who have the most serious interest in promoting unconditional love on behalf or for people who follow Christ are those who generally hate his word and have an entirely different agenda. And the fact is, there is no law order where unconditional love can be successfully promoted. And although some folks within the framework of a legal order, I mean like a society or a culture, may be exhorted that way, just as Christians are today, I can guarantee you that the almighty state certainly does not practice unconditional love. If anyone thinks that they might, try refraining from doing something the state compels you to do over a period of time, and you'll find out pretty quick there's no unconditional love on, on that part. I think that we need to think very carefully about exactly what we're promoting, if anyone is of a mind, to say that this is a, a good thing, unconditional love. Yeah. One of the aspects that um, we're really telling in this these essays that um, we're referring to, and both of them can be, one can be found in the second volume of Faith in Action, the three volumes set on Rush Juni's Calcine reports, and another can be found in 
volume one of an informed faith, which are his position papers. And if you go to the Chalcedon site, you can look up both and look up the word heresy because an unconditional love because they end up in the titles. When Christians say we claim the promises of God, I'm claiming the promises, just claim the promises. Well, here's one of the promises of God. The wages of sin is death and the gift of God is eternal life. So the Bible talks about that you're supposed to pay wages promptly. You're not supposed to put it off. As a matter of fact, our system of waiting till the end of the month or every two weeks really isn't biblical because that means that somebody's labor is not being exchanged for when he does it. And my guess is that we do it this way because the tax man has to get his cut. But God is a faithful paymaster. He promises that sin will be paid with death. Sin will be paid with judgment. And yet, when you talk about antinomianism and how casually people assume that they're right with God without knowing the specifics of what he says are mandatory in terms of receiving his blessing, which is payment, or receiving his judgment, which is payment, astounds me. And it isn't because I'm smarter than the average guy. It's just, I praise God, that my eyes were open to the fact that we're engaged in a war and there are rules and there are standards and we have to know what it is we're fighting for. Yes. And, you know, people need to think very uh, strongly about the fact that this aspect of the paymaster, you know, this is this is a part of the way God relates to his creation and to all people. Now, to those who are members of his covenant family, then that framework is, as that name implies, a covenant. And covenants, you know, there are marriage covenants, there are uh, or, or contracts, um, there are contracts where we enter into uh, agreements with other people over business matters. There are v- various aspects of covenant, but they all have conditions and they have penalties and they list those and or the blessings or the advantages if the covenant or the contract is maintained in the way that it's stipulated. This is life. I mean, we, we recognize this implicitly in just about every type of human activity. But yet, again, there are those who want to promote a defeatist agenda for the church with this idea of supposed unconditional love. And I think that uh, if if people will read, for example, Romans, the first two or three chapters of the book of Romans, this is on my mind because I'm currently preaching through that book, uh, Paul is constantly talking about this issue, about the accountability that all people have, whether they're pagan or whether they're Israelite, they're all all people. Every aspect of uh, human creation are accountable to God's law, and there's no escaping that. Uh, nobody can say, "I don't, I didn't know anything about those requirements." I, you know, th- th- I'm I'm okay. No, you're not, uh, because God has written the law on our hearts. He's witnessed His authority in His creation, and uh, even people who supposedly know nothing about the, the biblical faith and the biblical God, nevertheless, have some sense of right or wrong. It, it, even the most uh, pagan of societies, or even the most technocratic, there are standards of right or wrong that show that there's some sense of this, some innate sense of conscience that would show people that, you know, in practice, 
this uh, unconditional love where I have to be, uh, like the term you used a while ago, a punching bag for any and everything. I have to roll over and take it. That is, again, not something the scripture teaches. And it's a constant struggle on the part of we who are God's people to make sure that we are following what God's law word teaches us. Because if we don't, and if we're not vigilant in applying this, we will wind up advocating something that leads to our defeat and, uh, if not, our destruction. So the whole idea of covenants and covenantal way of dealing with things is God's idea. We didn't make it up. The Bible starts off with a covenant. And then we read about the broken covenant. And then we read about the promise of restoration. And so all these things have to do with covenants. But by and large, most people do not look at their relationship with Christ covenantally. They look at it in terms of, I was told that if I do this particular thing, then I'm saved. And aside from the fact that a thorough reading of scripture will never say that, because they'll say, but those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Well, then we have to parse out what does it mean to believe? Belief will have to do with action. Belief will have to do with standards. Belief will have to do with right and wrong. And so when we make covenants unconditional on one party, but the other party has to do whatever first party says, we destroy society because guess what? Isn't the constitution a covenant? Aren't state constitution covenants? Laws are basically the statement of right and wrong. But we've come to a point now where people don't recognize valid law, God's law, and they say, well, this is the law. So I have to go along with this because this is what my city says. This is what my state says. This is what my country says. The paymaster is going to pay. And my question is, are you prepared for that payment? And that is a very important question. Uh, I think, too, that going off in a slightly different direction with this discussion and bringing it into an area where everyone, I think, who is listening to our podcast would be aware of the events that happened in Nashville, Tennessee, a few weeks ago where six Christians were murdered by someone who targeted them for killing. And that gives us a pretty good example of where we would be asking ourselves, what ought our attitude toward the killer? Of course, supposedly the killer, uh, well, not supposedly the killer was killed. But let me put that question to you. Somebody knows you uh, and uh, your beliefs and your commitments and says, well, you know, Andrea, that was so sad about what happened in Nashville, but you know, shouldn't if the killer had survived, shouldn't we be willing to forgive that killer? Well, only if the killer violated our law as opposed to God's law. And since God has stated in his word what the penalties are for premeditated murder that don't involve self-defense and don't involve what we would consider traditional warfare, then as long as you want to play God, just realize that's what you're doing, and you're repeating the sin of Genesis 3-5. So I can't get in your head and tell you what you should or, you know, what, what you do or don't believe, but just recognize the fact that this is what you're doing. You're repeating that as opposed to holding the standard that God says that his word, his law is above his name. So just so you know who you're arguing with, you're not arguing with me. 
And uh, I, I'll go back to something I alluded to earlier, and that was the interview that the PBS journalist Bill Moyers did with Dr. Rastuni back in the 1980s, in which he traveled to uh, sit down and, and talk to him. And he raised a, a number of questions along something along these lines. And one of the questions he raised was the issue of the death penalty and the, the various uh, capital crimes that God's law listed that are uh, worthy of the death penalty. And, you know, at one point, Dr. Rasduni said to him, you know, I'm not crazy about these things, but he said, this is what God says is justice. And that's the resounding statement that people don't like to hear because a, a definition of justice or, or righteousness, the words mean similar things in the original languages, is unavoidable. The question is, who will define what is justice? Will it be the state? Uh, will it be the king or the potentate? Or will it be God's standards? And as we've had occasion to say before in these podcasts, and although Dr. Rasduni didn't say it to Bill Moyers in that particular interview, he or someone else I, I know have said it before I've said it, is that this is God's prescription for criminal population control. It's not just the fact that, say, guns have been banned at certain places, so uh, a killer, or somebody of a mind to go shoot up a place, well, no, well they, they banned guns there so I can get in and kill a bunch of people. It's not simply that. Uh, we, we, we have seen in stark relief how in recent weeks and years, frankly, where there are people who commit the most awful kinds of attacks, murders, beatings, and they're arrested, given a slap on the wrist, and they're back on the street in no time. Uh, you, can all, you can see these things almost daily. And so yes. I think that this is an example that uh, we, we are reaping the whirlwind for something that Dr. Rastuni referred to in the essay that's in the first volume of An Informed Faith. And I'm just going to quote it directly here. He says, men who pray for peace when sin abounds are praying falsely and for their own judgment. They should pray for peace with God, without which men cannot be at peace with one another. And then he goes on to refer to the passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2 where uh, we are to pray for rulers and all who are in authority. And he goes on to point out that that's one of the most misunderstood passages in Scripture. I've had to deal with this on various occasions, and it seems to roll around every July 4th, where people in churches want to sing God Bless America. And I've, I've stood at my pulpit and said, do you realize, you're asking, look what you're asking God to bless. Uh, yes, we should pray for our government authorities. Every week or just about every week, I pray for the governor of my state. I pray for President Biden. But I don't pray that the Lord will bless these men unless they're obeying his law word. And I pray, and I trust everyone does, that if anyone in authority, be be it uh, ecclesiastical or political or civil, if they are denying God's law word, if they are standing in the way of the promotion of God's standards of justice, our prayer ought to be, O oh Lord, strike these men, take them out of the way so that their evil may not continue to flourish. And alongside that would be the understanding that somebody, somebody's going to take their place. Civil government has a place and human beings have to occupy those various roles. And in one of the essays that we're referencing, he actually goes into describing what he considers the four kinds, the four different ways in which a politician would be oriented. And again, when we're talking politician, we're talking civil government. One government among many governments, 
but nonetheless civil government. So he says the first kind of politician is the unprincipled one. This is the guy who has a moral code that lines up with himself or herself. In other words, this is what I want. This is what we're going to do. And I'll do anything I can to get my ends. So that'd be the unprincipled politician. The next one he talks about are the idealist politicians who have this idea or this ideal as what would make everything work properly. And there are many communist idealists and socialist idealists. Um, they're going to remake the world. And because they know their idea is just so good, and Charles, I think you'd agree, there's a number who are very prominent today who feel all that is necessary is to state what they think is correct. And we should all go, oh, yes, absolutely. You know, so that would be the idealist. The third would be people who actually say, you know, what's going on here is terrible. We have to, we have to change the status quo, but they don't go in with any plan. They don't say, okay, the first thing we have to do is this law breaks covenant with the people based on the constitution or if they're Christian, God's law, but they don't go, they just think it's enough to go in and we're going to fight. And then what happens when they don't succeed is they become very cynical. And then all they can do is talk about their constituents, that they're not very smart and their colleagues. It's, you know, you have no idea how difficult it is to have to work with these other people. So what's left? Well, what's left is the Christian who enters into civil government, who places himself, others, and all of society under God's law and seeks to unashamedly have our civil law line up with biblical law. Now, I can just hear people saying, Charles, well, that'll never happen. Sure, it'll never happen if the people of God or those who profess belief in God don't say it must happen because these are our marching orders. So having a defeatist idea just turns us into like that third group of politicians who become cynical. Doesn't matter what you do. Evil will always triumph. Well, and the other reaction is if it's not, well, that'll never happen. Uh, on the more negative side, the, it'll be an attack response. Oh, th that's a theocracy. You're trying to promote a theocracy as if you don't already live in one. The right. theocracy is unavoidable. You are living under some supreme law, some voice of authority that says it's voice is supreme and absolutely authoritative, and you must obey what it tells you. You can't get away from that. And any structure of any form of the governments, like you're talking, civil government, ecclesiastical government, family government, even small organizations with their governmental structures, there are boundaries of laws that cannot and shall not be infringed without punishment. And so um, I was thinking back to the earlier part of the discussion where we were questioning about how we sort of got into this idea. Where, where did these things come in? And I was just thinking back to the halcyon days of our, uh, our youth, if our uh, non-boomer listeners will allow us to do this. You remember the, uh, the Beatles song, Love is All You Need. You know, right. the constant refrain, Love is All You Need. And it was another song, I forgot, it was a, a female um, artist, I forgot what her name was. But, uh, you know, the refrain was, put a little love in your heart. Think of your fellow man. Lend him a helping hand. Put a little love in your heart. And then, of course, there was the quintessential John Lennon song, Imagine, which, for whatever reason, some people really like. 
Just imagine there's no law. Just imagine that there's no government. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Well, I tell people who go gaga over that song, John Lennon knows better now. (laughs) You don't have to imagine anymore that there is a law and that there is a God. And, you know, he has, he will be judged on whether or not he had bowed the knee. But when you have this idea that we have unconditional love, unconditional forgiveness, you lose the ability to say anything is wrong. So for example, how many times when somebody who is labeled transgender, and we just have to say is in rebellion against how God created him or her, will say, you know, we, we really, you know, we feel sorry for how they feel. In other words, stop saying that somehow God's law needs to have a caveat that we apologize for. I mean, if you read some of those imprecatory Psalms talking about having the children's heads of the enemies of Israel dashed against a rock, I wouldn't say that's kind and gentle, but it makes it into the scripture as God's truth. So we've got to stop siding with the enemy to think that well, if we do, the enemy will come around. That's not how the enemies of God come around. No, and and what you just referred to is um, one one reason that we early on had heresies in the church that basically said, well, you know, the God of the Old Testament, it's a different God than than Jesus and the God of Jesus, because that's the God of love, whereas this God of the Old Testament is mean and angry. Um, you know, that, that was declared a heresy, and rightfully so, early on in the history of the church. But it has its modern forms. Now, yes. I'm okay if people have red-letter Bibles. But, you know, there's some aspect to that where nothing else matters than what the words of Jesus were, and we we got to have them in those red letters so we can separate them out from everything else in Scripture. But Christ is the author of all of Scripture, not just the stuff that's put in the red letters in your King James Bible. And if he is who Scripture claims he is, and he is, then he is the author of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, and there's not one part of it that's inconsequential or of no use. And the fact is, we reap the whirlwind again if we turn away from what God says. This is justice. This is how you promote life in society. And and that famous proverb that Rushduni likes so much, I could read it over and over again and just contemplate what it says. In Proverbs 8.36, I believe it is, God's wisdom says, all they that hate me are in love with death. And, you know, it is profoundly significant with the example that you used of the this transgender agenda. And it is an agenda. You know, there is big money funding these things. It's not some natural inclination on the part of people who are starting to question their, their sexual identity. It's something being promoted. But the the ugly face behind it is the face of death. Because what people don't realize, when people do this so-called transi- transitioning, they be, they, they're not able to have children. They completely obliterate their reproductive abilities. So, you know, there's so much about what is currently being promoted in our culture and society, and whether it's masked as unconditional love and acceptance of everything and equity and toleration, its end is going to be in death and the obliteration of what it means to be a human created in God's image. Yes, very much so. So really, these are then viewed as the next stages in evolution, the criminal, 
person who's gone beyond good and evil. The transgender eventually will have transhuman. In other words, evolution doesn't stop as an idea and ends up in life. It ends up in death. It says just the opposite, that out of chaos, we have all this order. But if it's not God's order, is it really order? No, absolutely not. And that sentiment is one that this uh, out of chaos order is a humanistic one. It comes from the Enlightenment era uh, in European history, where men were seeking to throw off any vestiges of uh, biblical or church authority. And so the groundwork for that is the idea that whatever man decides, and I think in one of his writings, I don't know if it's in the two essays that we're referring to, but Rastuni refers to the French philosopher and promoter of pornographic writing, the Marquis de Sade. And, you know, he was a man who promoted this idea of absolute acceptance of everything. But Rastuni points out that even he was a phony because the one thing he would not accept is biblical truth. He said, we, we must eradicate all aspects of Christian morality from our society. So somehow that wasn't acceptable to the Marquis de Sade. Right. And, for people who don't know, the Marquis de Sade gives us our word sadism because that's what he's all about. And yet in some circles, and I'd have to say in the, you know, LGBTQ, whatever the new letters are, they are disciples of the Marquis de Sade because they act and then they try to get our society to act in such a way that we can't stop them. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to believers who say, what are you going to do? You know, they're going to cheat. They're going to lie. They're going to th force this down our throats. What are you going to do? You know, and then some think, well, we've got to do what they do better than they do it. No, no, no. That's not the weapons of our warfare. It's just that people won't use the weapons that we've been given. The sword of the spirit, the word of God, prayer having access to the throne room, and then in fellowship with other people, supporting each other in godly activities. I'm currently involved with a lot of people, Charles, who are professing believers and manifest a true love of God. But boy, oh boy, oh boy, do they hate Calvinism. And they can't even exactly tell you who John Calvin was, but they just know it's wrong. And one of the things that they get very upset about is the idea of unconditional election. Well, there's that word unconditional. Who gets to be unconditional? God gets to be unconditional. He's the one he decides, Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I have hated. And you know what? Even if you were going to argue with him, it's a losing argument because you're not God. But boy, oh boy, unconditional election is a no-no. But unconditional love, unconditional forgiveness, which is not anywhere in scripture, is promoted as what it means to be a Christian. And that's why for those listening, we've got a lot of work to do. But praise God, we're in a situation now where things are falling apart significantly that you can come in with answers from the word of God. And not having to frame it in like, well, you may not believe the Bible, but the Bible says, how about just saying the word of God says this, and then stand there and wait for a response, as opposed to feeling we have to sugarcoat it because they may not believe the Bible. Yes, and people may not be aware that the uh, clarification of unconditional election was 
something that came about when humanistic attitudes were being promoted in the Dutch Reformed Church, uh, I believe in the 1600s, late 1500s. And the, the synod of one of those uh, churches uh, met together to address these ideas that were being promoted and determined, uh, rightfully so, that this idea of the, the, the salvation depends entirely on man's choice and not God's choice. And that's the reason people, they'll be okay with unconditional love, but unconditional election is unacceptable because the former, well, it promotes humanism, it promotes man's will, but the latter uh, recognizes the supreme authority and power of God's will alone, and that's unacceptable to humanistic man. Right. And so for people who truly have the Holy Spirit and exhibit fruits of the Spirit, why would it bother these people that God chose them and they didn't choose him? Now, I recognize, Charles, that when we come to faith at the very outset, it's a very subjective experience. But if you just stay eating the baby food and never actually come to the hard meat of the word, then I believe the Greek word is that you you remain an idiot. When, when Paul was saying you remain babes when you should be eating strong meat, he's going, you remain idiots because if you have somebody who's in a grown body who acts like he's three or four years old, it's not a good look and it's not a very useful um, participant in society or great, even greater the kingdom of God. So there's a lot of idiots walking around totally happy with this good old time religion that's just really simple. Jesus loves you. That's all you need to know. You don't tell them Jesus hates some people too, and you may be manifesting the fact that you don't have the Holy Spirit. I would think that that would give people reason to say, hmm, I better pay attention. What is it I believe and how do I act in accordance with it? Yeah, I mean, if we really understand and believe what scripture teaches, then the path that the Lord may use to bring about the election that he has determined for a particular individual may well be on the path where someone honestly says, you know, you might want to be concerned because, in fact, God may hate you and hate what you're doing. Yeah, you know, Most people would not imagine that as an avenue for evangelism because they've been brainwashed. And, and I, I'm not saying, obviously, it's something you say each and every case, but there are a lot of people walking around like, uh, oh, I'll use the example of, I think it was Henry David Thoreau on his deathbed. He was asked, uh, have you made your peace with God? And he arrogantly said, well, I wasn't aware that we'd ever quarreled. Gosh. <laughs> I mean, if you don't know that you are liable to the judgment, then why should you be concerned? And then on the day when you stand before God's justice, what will be your excuse? If I had known, maybe uh, I would have turned uh, a different way which in and of itself is a proclamation that my will be done. In other words, God's supposed to apologize for the fact then that he didn't really show me well enough. When you pointed out the early chapters of Romans, that that's not an excuse. Everybody knows, and they suppress that truth. But it's not a passive suppression. It's an active suppression. And that's why... I agree. You don't go up to people and just blurt it out. But in your interactions with people, it would be wise to get to the point where you can make such a statement. Otherwise, you haven't really helped them. If you know, you're know you going down a road and you know that if you go to the right, there's a cliff and you'll go over it. If you go to the left, you won't. 
and you decide, you know what? I just don't want to judge. I don't want to be judgmental. If that person really wants to go off to the right, who am I to tell them they can't do it? Well, when they go off the cliff, guess what? You have been a participant because there's a premise in scripture of the liability of the bystander. Now, does the bystander have to hijack the car, get in there, kick him out and turn to the left? Well, not only I don't believe that's what's being required, but it's also not very likely, but you won't be guilty of having failed to communicate the truth. And I think I'm just going to keep my my opinions to myself. I'm not going to rock the boat. That's not biblical either. And so if you're going to present the truth of scripture, you're not going to be doing it with a silent smile. You're going to be doing it with the words that communicate to people that there's only one way to everlasting life. And we have, I believe, in this time that we've devoted to this topic, tried to bring to light as best we can what that truth is and what God's word actually says. I mean, a person could simply do uh, a very simple thing. If you have a a reasonably good computer uh, Bible software program, you can do your own word search very quickly and very easily, and you can find easily enough what God's word says about such things. And one of the most egregious examples of where people uh, are being told just the opposite of what God's word says you know, this this language about the unconditional love of God has taken different forms over the decades, but it, it has come to fruition in a, in a very stark way in a sermon I saw being preached. I saw the video of this. It was some megachurch somewhere with the usual, you know, on the stage, rock and roll band and all that kind of stuff. And the, the, the quote, preacher actually told the congregation that if you oppose same-sex marriage, then you're blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. He actually said that. And this yeah. was not a, you know, a, a, a quote, left-wing church. This promoted itself as an evangelical-type church. If you yeah. oppose what God's law condemns, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And you have to wonder, Charles, how many people sat in that congregation and started to say, you know, I don't think that's right. Well, he said it. And this is where I get all my information because God forbid I actually pick up a book on theology and actually read it and attempt to understand it. And then, oh, even worse than that, go find other points of view that might challenge my current thinking so I can discern what does the Bible actually say. We have people who really and truly like those, you know, pureed carrots or pureed squash that come out of the little Gerber jar and just get fed that. And you know what? I'm not hungry anymore, but I'm certainly not effective either. Well, you know, I've studied God's word, so you don't have to. So you've got to hear what everything I say and believe it. Unconditionally believe what I tell you. (laughs) Right, right. Um, I can't tell you how when... (laughs) The kids were living at home and we'd be watching a TV. I could ruin most television shows by going, okay, wait a second. Like, what's the premise of what he's saying? Is that true or not? And finally, you know, we turn off the set and then I say, why are we paying for cable? I keep criticizing all these shows and we turn it off. So for a long time, when the antennas would still work on, you know, your rooftop, we didn't have it. But if you're listening to a song or you're reading a blog post or you're hearing a preacher or you're hearing a media personality or you're hearing a politician, 
if your ears don't go up and go, that's not scriptural, that's not according to God's law, and then don't go, yes, but what do you expect? He or she is not a Christian. It's like, then what we should expect is this person doesn't know the truth, and now somehow or other the truth has to be gotten to this person. That's what being the church militant means. We're not supposed to be like the free hippies or the Hare Krishnas or whatever, handing out flowers, going love, love, love. Love is the son of God coming to earth, taking on human flesh, dying on a cross for our sins. That's love. It's not a flower. Exactly. So I hope that our listeners have benefited from some of this discussion. And before we wrap up, I would like to remind our listeners of the two volumes that you referred to earlier and informed faith, the position papers of RJ Rustuni volume one, it's a three volume set and uh, then faith and action, uh, a collection of his articles. That's also in three volumes, but I also wanted to throw in this one because we made several references to the Marquis de Sade. Uh, Dr. Rustuni published a book some years ago, published in 2003, actually. So I guess this was published after he went home to be with the Lord Yes. It's called to, to Be as God, A Study of Modern Thought Since the Marquis de Sade. And he goes into a fair amount of detail about some of these issues that we've been talking about today, specifically as regarding that rather disgusting individual. Now, depending on where you hear this podcast, you may or may not see references to these books. But if you access our podcast through the Calcedon site, calcedon.edu, alongside the um, where the recording comes up, I usually list these things. and. It's good to have, for, for those of you who are embracing these ideas, it's, it's a good use of your funds to have both of these three volume sets. And if you don't already have the three volumes on the Institutes of Biblical Law, these are the kinds of things you need that when you run into, I wonder what's the biblical way to consider this. You go to the index, you go to the table of contents and chances are, you'll find something that relates to your question. And even if the essay didn't relate to your question, you'll go, wow, I just learned something. <laughs> and so for those of us, and Charles and I count as this, who have been involved with reading these things and listening to the lectures and interacting with the scripture with this point of view for decades, a lot of the things that stymie the average believer don't stymie us because we can say, nope, that's not what biblical law says. And my hope is that people get to that point so that you can be the teachers as opposed to the students all the time. And we'll always be students in that regard, but there comes a point where you have to share what you know. Well, thank you, Andrew. It's been a very interesting and stimulating discussion. Yes, indeed. Out of the question podcast at gmail.com is how you get a hold of us. We look forward to you doing so. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.